So we're going to read Judges 17 and Judges 18 this morning. Um, before we get there, let me just uh, recap. If you're new to us, a very warm welcome. It's our habit at uh, Christ Church to go through books of the Bible. We're going through Judges and we're nearly at the end. Um, let me just recap the story so far. Uh, God's people have entered the promised land. They were promised this land. They were slaves in Egypt and they've entered the promised land. And the start of Judges sort of goes okay. But ever since then, we've broadly speaking seen a downward spiral as uh, God's people have received the gift of the land, but they've rejected God as God. Again, children, you probably know this. It's, you're probably mindful it's Christmas coming up. And you know that time where you just want the presents. You're not fussed about kissing granny on the cheek. Just come on, granny, hand over the goods. That, that is essentially, but far deeper, the attitude of uh, the Israelites towards uh, their Lord God. And we see this downward spiral in they, their behavior towards him. They worship uh, other gods. They do evil. And so what happens is God sends in another nation to defeat them. But in his mercy and in his, com- his compassion, he, raises, he, he, he sees their pity. He hears their cries and he raises up a judge to rescue them. And then they have peace for a time. But then they do evil again and they do more evil than that which they did before and the cycle goes on and on and on now there are there are 12 judges in the book of judges sort of six major ones they get a few chapters and then six minor ones that sometimes just get it just just get one verse but we're at the end of those judges now and now we have sort of the epilogue we've got the last uh, five chapters uh, really two accounts over the five chapters and we see what's going on from another angle it's like we get the diagnosis of what's going wrong. It's like we sort of understand why they're behaving. They're behaving in the way that they're uh, behaving. And uh, diagnoses are painful, but they're good. Uh, recently, I had my. Um, I said this before. Sorry if I'm boring you. Uh, you get to forty, the NHS just want to sort of just check you're you're doing all right. So do you want to come in? I was like, yeah, no problem. Happy to show you how healthy I am. The results come in. They're like, mm, actually, a bit awkward. Your blood sugar is too high. Okay, stop eating cake, basically. Now, listen, no one wants to be have a bad diagnosis, but actually, it's essential. I get it, isn't it? So I can do something about it. And that's exactly what's going on here. We've seen their behaviour, and now we're sort of diagnosing their behaviour a little bit. Why they're doing the things that they're doing. So as I read chapter 17 and 18, I want you to see if you can see what is at the heart of what is going wrong. So that introduction, uh, let me read uh, chapter 17, verse 1. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, the 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, from you about which you uttered a curse and also spoke it in my ears, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine and he made an ephod and household gods and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, there was a young man of Bethlehem and Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he sojourned there. 
And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I'm a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah, and I'm going to sojourn where I may find a place. And Micah said to him, stay with me and be to me a father and a priest. And I'll give you 10 pieces of silver a year and a seat of clothes and your living. And the Levite went in. And the Levite was content to dwell with a man. And the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite. And the young man became his priest and was in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as, as priest. In those days there was no king in Israel. And in those days the people of the tribe of Dan were seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in. For until then no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. So the people of Dan sent five able men from the whole number of their tribe, from Zorah and from Eshtaol, to spy out the land and to explore it. And they said to them, Go and explore the land. And they came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, and lodged there. When they were, uh, sorry, when, when they were by the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young Levites. And they turned aside and said to him, Who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What is your business here? And he said to them, This is how Micah dealt with me. He has hired me, and I have become his priest. And they said, Acquire of God, please, that we may know whether the journey on which we are setting out will succeed. And the priest said to them, Go in peace. The journey on which you go is under the eye of the Lord. Then the five men departed and came to Laish and saw the people who were there, how they lived in security after the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and unsuspecting, lacking nothing that is in the earth and possessing wealth, and how they were far from the Sidonians and had no dealings with anyone. And when they came to their brothers at Zorah and Eshtael, their brothers said to them, What do you report? They said, Arise and let us go up against them. For we have seen the land, and behold, it is very good. And will you do nothing? Do not be slow to go, to enter and possess the land. As soon as you go, you will come to an unsuspecting people. The land is spacious, for God has given it into your hands, a place where there is no lack of anything that is in the earth. So 600 men of the tribe of Dan, armed with weapons of war, set out from Zorah and Eshtel, and went up and encamped at kiriath Jerem in Judah. On this account, that place is called Mahanadan to this day. Behold, it is west of kiriath Jerem, And they passed on from there to the hill country of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah. Then the five men who had gone to scout out the country of Laish and said to their brothers, Do you know that in the houses there are an ephod, household gods, a carved image and a metal image? Now therefore consider what you will do. And they turned aside there and came to the house of the young Levite at the home of Micah and asked him about his welfare. Now the 600 men of the Danites, armed with weapons of war, stood by the entrance of the gates. And the five men who had gone to scout out the land went up and entered and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods and the metal image, while the priest stood by the entrance of the gate with 600 men armed with weapons of war. And when these went into Micah's house and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, the priest said to them, What are you doing? And they said to him, Keep quiet, 
Put your hand on your mouth and come with us and be to us a father and a priest. Is it better for you to be a priest to the house of one man or to the priest of a tribe and clan in Israel? And the priest's heart was glad. He took the ephod and the household gods and the carved image and went along with the people. So they turned and departed, putting the little ones and the livestock and the goods in front of them. When they had gone a distance from the home of Micah, the men who were in the houses near Micah's house were called out, and they overtook the people of Dan. And they shouted to the people of Dan, who turned round and said to Micah, What is the matter with you, that you come with such a company? And he said, You take my gods that I made, and the priest, and go away, and what have I left? How then do you ask me, what is the matter with you? And the people of Dan said to him, Do not let your voice be heard among us, lest angry fellows fall upon you, and you lose your life with the lives of your household. Then the people of Dan went their way, and when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned and went back to his, to his home. But the people of Dan took what Micah had made, and the priests who belonged to him, and they came to Laish, to a people quiet and unsuspecting, and struck them with the edge of the sword, and burned the city with fire. And there was no deliverer, because it was far from Sidon, and they had no dealings with anyone. It was in the valley that belongs to Beth Rehob. Then they built the city and lived in it. And they named the city Dan after the name of Dan, their ancestor, who was born to Israel. But the name of the city was Laish at the first. And the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves. And Jonathan, the son of Gershon, the son of Moses, and his sons were priests of, to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up Micah's carved image that he made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. Okay, a long reading, but I wondered if as I was reading, you spotted what is the heart uh, of the problem of the people of Israel. It's, called, it's not the whole people of Israel. We've got the tribe of Dan, but there's a sense in which Dan is reflecting, the tribe of Dan is reflecting um, the wider situation. Um, the, the author uh, writes two times, what is the problem? Looking at the people of Dan, looking at Micah, he reflects on the broader Israelite issue. 17 verse 6, did you read it? 17 6, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Again, 18.1, in those days there was no king in Israel. There was no king and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's the problem, people doing what is right in their own eyes. Really two ways of saying the same thing. No king, people being independent, uh, people doing whatever they fancy. Now uh, listen, we love to do what is right in our own eyes, uh, don't we? Uh, every, every, uh, have, have you ever had something just made for you just as you like it, uh, tailored to your needs, something bespoke? I had the privilege when I was about 18, 19, my parents actually lived overseas, lived in Singapore, and I needed to get a suit and I got a bespoke suit made. In fact, that was the first time I came across the word bespoke. And I just love it. I use it whenever I can, a bespoke suit. And it was wonderful because it was cheaper than a next suit in the UK. I get this tailored suit and I absolutely uh, loved it. Uh, bespoke, fitted perfectly, just what I wanted. 
I've never had a bespoke uh, suit uh, since. Uh, but naturally, we all have preferences. We like to fit everything around our preferences. We're, we can sort of have whatever we want, whenever we want, can't we? It's, that's the age of the internet. That's the age of Netflix, Amazon, uh, delivery. We can have whatever we want and whenever we want. If we're going on a website, you know, Twitter, Instagram, you follow who you want to follow. Everything is tailored for us. In my household, everything is uh, tailored sometimes. Not, not that I like it to be this way, but when it's eggs, it's you know poached for you, boiled for you, scrambled for you. Why can't we all just have the same thing? Everyone wants things tailored uh, to themselves. I think the classic one of this is, uh, this is very attractive, is, is sweets, isn't it? You, what are the best sweets? We all know the best sweets are pick and mix, aren't they? Because you can have whatever you want. You can fill it with cola cubes if you want, or a bit of uh, wine mice thrown in there as well. Have whatever you want. Uh, pick and mix now these things are fine these things are good having things that tailored to yourself very often uh, good if it's convenient and if it works but that is what people are doing in the book of judges according to their religion they are uh, it's pick and mix religion it's bespoke religion and what they're doing is blending the religion of the scriptures the religion of the lord god almighty uh, with a religion of their own preferences and more specifically a religion uh, like the tribes and the nations and the peoples around them and that's what we get and what we're going to see the main point of this passage is this is that blended worship when you take uh, the scriptures but you blend it in with the world blended worship is no worship at all it's not half worship it's no worship I think often we think you're either religious or you're not. You either follow a particular religion or you don't. But the reality really is it's much more subtle than that. It's more a case of you either follow a religion wholeheartedly or you don't. It's not so much uh, you are religious or you're not. There are plenty of people who are religious but not wholeheartedly religious. Plenty of people who would call themselves Christian but not wholeheartedly Christian. In fact, not particularly bothered by it at all. When uh, our family were in the Gambia, West Africa, uh, we saw a lot of blended religion when we were out there, both Christians and Muslims, in fact, because the history of West Africa is much more, so for thousands of years, is, is local tribal religions. But as Christianity and as Islam to a greater extent has come, people have been converted to those religions. And the Gambia is much more uh, Islam than Christianity. But you see Islam... Uh, with a bit of blended uh, local tribal religion in as well. And you see it with Christianity as well. Christians, who you go to church, but occasionally, yeah, well, let's go to the witch doctor as well. That's, uh, that, that, that'll help us out as well. Now, it's quite easy when you go to another country to see how their culture has blended something with their local customs. But I suspect we've got a number of internationals here. I know a lot of people here are Christians uh, from other countries. You've come to the UK and you've probably got a quite a sharp eye as to how we Christians in the UK are blending how we follow the Lord Jesus Christ uh, with, with just general Western principles. We're, we're, we're very often blind to it, but you probably see it. But the reality is uh, everyone does it to some extent. So how do we see that in Judges 17 and 18? Well, the Holy Spirit is telling us uh, how uh, religion is blended and features of blended, but blended worship. I'm going to start with the madness of blended worship. Okay, blended worship is, is mad. And we sort of see that in the first few verses of chapter 17. Uh, Gemma, we, you, might think, you might remember that we saw a bit of madness last week. We looked at Samson and again, 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 Delilah ties him up. 
but he can't just resist uh, being tied up by her and telling her all his secrets. It, it's a madness, but he goes back to her again and again and again, even though ultimately he can see she is not for him. It's a form of madness. Well, that madness we see in uh, Judges 17 in a slightly different way, but we see in the story of account of Micah and his mother. Um, Micah's an Israelite man from the hill country of Ephraim, sort of in the middle of Israel. And there's a sense in which he fears God because he, he, he's, he hears his mother utter a curse about the 1,100 pieces of silver um, that have been stolen from her. And on hearing that there's a curse, he fesses up and he says, no, it was me. I took it. Now, why does he confess at that point? Well, presumably because he's heard this curse and he doesn't want God's curse to fall on him. But it's a form of madness, isn't it? If, if he's really concerned about God's curse falling on him, well, he shouldn't have stolen it in the first place. Everyone knows that's not what you do. But his mother, too, suffers from a form of madness as well. She, she goes on to bless the man she has cursed. Now, sense in which it's understandable. It's her son. She, oh, do I really want to curse my son? I know he's done something wrong. I love him. But it, it is a madness to bless him. She might forgive him, but to bless him. He's only started to undo that which he should never have done in the first place. She's blessing him for that. It's probably a, 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 an example of the pattern, the way in which uh, he was brought up when he was younger. You know, effusive praise when probably discipline was what was required. But the mother goes on. Um, uh, she, she decides she's not only going to bless her son, she's going to dedicate this money to the Lord. And in verse three, that's what she says. She wants to dedicate it to Yahweh. But again, she doesn't quite do that. She has 1,100 shekels. She says she's going to dedicate, but only 200 end up getting dedicated you either sort of dedicate yourself to the Lord or you don't. So you sort of half in, half out. But much stranger is the way she devotes herself to the Lord, the way she devotes her money to her God. Look at verse three. It's, it's a peculiar verse. She says, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Is that strange? I will dedicate this to the Lord to do exactly what he hates. It's bizarre, isn't it? A bit like if you had a sort of a, a spouse and you knew they were sort of um, gluten free and you gave them, you know, I'm going to honour you with a, a, a meal that's full of gluten. It, it, it's that sort of thing that's, that's, that's going on here. It's totally contradictory. Totally, it's a total madness uh, going on. So she devotes the money uh, to the Lord uh, and by idolatry breaking the second commandment and what's going on here is they are mixing the religion of the scriptures uh, with the religion of the world that's how people outside in the canaanites would have worshipped with carved um with with carved idols and metal instruments uh, now children uh, you, you know, don't you, that uh, some things mix well and some things stay. I want you to imagine, I don't know why Christmas on my mind so much at the moment, but imagine you get a brand new Lego set at Christmas and um, you're about to get stuck into it, but your parents call you dinner. And as you go around for dinner, you notice your brother and sister leave dinner early. You don't think anything of it. But as you go upstairs, they've, they've ditched half your Lego and replaced it with Playmobil. They go, oh, that's much better. Now do Lego and Playmobil mix. They don't. It'd be a total disaster, totally frustrating. But that's sort of what we've got going on. We've got a sort of Lego mixed with Playmobil. We've got the religion of the scriptures and mixed with the religion uh, of the land. 
Now, not to be out, outdone by his mother, uh, Micah gets in on the madness as well. So he sets up this shrine, a local place of worship, again, explicitly against God's law, and he ordains a priest, his, his son to be a priest, a bit of nepotism going there, again, explicitly against the law. So he has his, his own son who's a priest. Why does he do that? It doesn't make sense. If God is God, then worship him in the way that he's commanded. But if God is not God, then don't worship him at all. But again, Mike is adopting these half measures. Now, we might think, hold on a second. He's sort of just trying his best. Mike is trying his best. He wants to worship God. He's heard something about a priest. He's, he's just doing his best. But again, don't think that's true. Because then this Levite does come along. Now, a Levite could qualify to be a priest. And the Levite comes along. And it was probably a bit awkward for Mike. He's made his son priest, but he has to demote his son, gets the Levite uh, to become the priest. And he said to Levi, look, you be my priest. You be my father and I'll pay you well. So this blended worship, it's total madness. Why is it madness? Because it just doesn't make sense. If the God of the Bible is the Bible, then worship him. But he's not, don't. But half deliberate half measures it is crazy, but that is essentially what we do when we worship the Lord half-heartedly. Now, it's quite easy uh, to spot the madness out there in the world, the inconsistencies of the world out there. So I think uh, the most obvious madness, I think, in our current culture is this whole sort of transgender issue where people are saying trans women are women. And why is that madness? Well, aside from the right or wrong with it, it just doesn't make sense. It's a form of logical madness. It's denying reality because it's extracting any meaning from the thing it's trying to define. It's a logical madness. And we saw that the world is going mad. We look at the world, we say the world's going mad. But actually, the scriptures show us that actually the church can often go mad as well. We can often be just as inconsistent to contend and profess and to sing praises to God as God and then to commit any sin at all is a form of madness it's a form of inconsistency we're doing with our body what we say with our lips uh, is wrong a total form of madness there's a certain madness isn't there in turning up to church on Sunday because you know that's what the Lord God wants you to do and then not engaging. Again, we can all do this, can't we? We tell them something, we know it's really important. And we sit in a service and the songs are singing, we're just away with the fairies. Or the preacher's preaching and we just don't really care, we're not listening. We're looking at our phone, we're, we're thinking about what we're going to do for lunch. That's what blended worship can be. It's a form of madness. Okay, secondly, uh, blended wor- worship, form of madness. Secondly, this sort of blended worship is very transactional. It's very transactional. Now, uh, in chapter 18, uh, we start to get behind some of the reasons for why uh, God's people are sort of mixing and matching uh, their religion. Uh, It's basically pretty simple, though. They're doing it for prosperity. That's what they want. So actually, we see at the end of chapter 17, you see what Micah says? He says, now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. He sort of thinks almost superstitiously, if I've got a priest, a Levite priest, then I'll be blessed. He knew he shouldn't have had his son as a priest before, but he's like, no, I've got a Levite priest now, then I'll be blessed. And it's just basically transactional. He doesn't really care about the glory of the Lord. He just cares about being blessed. He just cares about uh, this sort of transaction. And we see this continue, this sort of transactional blended worship 
when the Danites uh, come through, there are these five Danites and they're sort of a, on a reconnaissance party and they meet uh, Micah's Levites. See, they, when they meet the Levite, verse 5, they, they find out, oh, he's a priest. And they say, hold on a second, well, can you let us know, will we have any success? To which the Levite says in 18 verse 6, go in peace. The journey on which you go is under the eye of the Lord. Now, seems pretty much harmless enough. But if we sort of, we're sort of really getting to the grips with judges, we'd remember actually this isn't the first time the Danites have come up. See, the Danites are one of the tribes in chapter one who don't manage to take their land. They don't take their land. In other words, God had allocated them a land, but they haven't taken it. And now they're trying to f- find a land that is outside of the promised land, the place God had promised them. But it's as if they just think, oh, hold on a second. Maybe we can bless it. Maybe we can just polish our disobedience a little bit and it will still be just about okay. It's very sort of transactional from their point of view. If they do a prayer, if they seek a prophet or a priest, then maybe everything will be okay. And again, later on, we see the whole Danite, the rest of the Danites come through. So you've got this sort of forward search party of five and then the 600 warriors come through. What do they do? So chapter so 18, 14 to 20, they go in and they take all his, uh, they take Micah, Micah's Levi, uh, Levite and they take all his religious garb with him. They take his priest, his, his ephod, which will be his priestly clothes, his household gods and his carved image. Why do they do it? It's transactional. It's sort of superstitious. If we do this, then God will bless us. It's a religion motivated by greed and it's a religion motivated by superstition. Again, children, I wonder if you ever think everything's going to be okay at night as long as I have my favourite uh, teddy with me. And maybe it's more a daytime thing. Actually, I need my, my lucky shirt on or my lucky socks. I guess there's a sense in which we are all in danger of that sort of superstition, aren't we? It's a picture of it. If I prayed, then I'll be lucky. As long as I do a few bits of religion, then God will bless me. It's a sort of transaction. And this story shows us the disaster of thinking that way. And actually, we see it's not just true for uh, Micah, not true for the Danites. It's true of the Levite himself. He's sort of a priest for hire. Whoever bids the highest, yeah, he'll do what you want. I'll say whatever you want me to say. Just scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. Uh, the people uh, gather around a minister who's willing to say whatever they want. So that's what the Danites, that's why the Danites go to him. They know they're going where they shouldn't go. But like, oh, come on, just say what you want to say. And he will say it. And later on, he's offered uh, lots of uh, a sort of a pay increase. He's offered a promotion. Then I say, look, come be the priest of a whole tribe. And his heart is glad. Why? Why? Because for him, it's just a transaction. Religion is just a transaction. If I do enough uh, sort of religious activity, then there will be a blessing. So this blended religion, we've seen this form of madness. We've also seen it's a form of, uh, it's very transactional. It's superstitious. Thirdly, this blended worship is frankly pathetic. It's pathetic. So Danites take away the Levites and his carved images and his ephod. And uh, Micah is devastated. He's lost everything. He chases after the Danites to appeal to get his lucky charms back. Uh, look what he says uh, in verse 24. It's a form of desperation. So you take my gods that I made and the priest and go away. And what have I left? What have I left? This blended religion, which just takes 
certain specific things, but has drifted far from the living God, it's just totally uh, pathetic. You see, the God who Micah believed in, it starts off, it looks like it's Yahweh. He's the Lord. He, he, he's, he's got God's name. He worships Yahweh. That's what he says at the end of uh, chapter 17, verse 13. Now I know that Yahweh will prosper me. He's not talking about generic God here. He's talking about Yahweh, the God of the Bible, blessing him. Uh, but then he's totally domesticated the God of the Bible. He's put a collar around him. He's named him. He's put him above his kitchen sink. He's just become a, 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 an, an idol for blessing him. A good luck charm. And in doing this, he's actually made himself a whole new God. Again, later on in chapter 18, so the, the predominant name of the, of, the, of, the, of the God being worshipped is Yahweh. But then later on, it's just thrown out. It's my gods, my just, just random gods, not even an all-powerful God. And these gods that they've been made are totally vulnerable and totally weak and makes the worshipper of these gods totally vulnerable and totally weak. And we blend our worship of gods. We start to put our trust in all the trappings of external religion. And when we start to put our trust in our religion or our habits or even what we do, it can all get taken away from us. Circumstantially, it can get taken away from us. Maybe there's something particularly physical we need. That can get taken away from us. Again, children, I wonder if you're, you, you, you have a lucky charm. Maybe it's your teddy. Maybe it's those special socks. What happens when you can't find them? It's panic, isn't it? What, what's going to happen to the day? What's going to happen to me at night? I don't have my lucky charm. It's a disaster. Well, the only one who can ever be taken away from us is the Lord God Almighty the creator of the heavens and the earth, the one who promises to be with us in all circumstances, even the worst of circumstances, he promises to be with us. It's in the worship of the one true God that we, have, we find real strength, what we find real security, that we find ultimate blessing. Uh, nothing else ultimately matters. This is what the psalmist says, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That is the cry of someone who worships the one true God. But when we blend our religion with sort of other superstitions, become very, very vulnerable. And we see Micah, just totally pathetic, starts off with the eye, but they're then devastated. Why? Because essentially a load of possessions from his house have gone missing. Finally, blended worship is contagious. The story of Micah it starts with domestic affair. It's a, it's a dispute between a mother uh, and a son. A mother blesses the son who steals from her. And she blends worship of the Lord with worship of the surrounding nations. But where does it end up? It ends up with a whole tribe of Israel outside of the land of Israel, worshipping away and that the God of Israel has said mustn't be done. And we see at the end just how far they've drifted. Did you notice at the very end who this Levite is? He is the son or the grandson of Moses. How far their worship has drifted from the one, Moses, who destroyed the worship of carved idols. Back in uh, Exodus, when Aaron sets up a carved image, Moses comes down and destroys it and burns it. And yet his grandson has drifted so far, so quickly, 
starting again the worship through carved images how far it spread but we see as well at the very end of the story it's not just actually the tribe of dan where this stops did you see that in the very uh, i think it's the penultimate verse it says and his sons were priests to the tribe of the danites until the day of the captivity of the land i think one second what's that about well that's 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 looking out into the future where later on, even after King David, after King Solomon, the kingdom of Israel gets split into two. It's two tribes in the south, ten tribes in the north. And to make sure that the northern tribes don't go to the southern tribes, the king sets up more idol centers. And where does he go? He goes to Dan. In other words, this, this, what starts in a household spreads all the way to a whole tribe. What's the point? The point is, look how contagious this blended worship is. What starts with a few uh, harmless tweaks uh, of uh, tweaks to the worship of Yahweh doesn't really matter. Let's just change it like this and this. It's the same God in name anyway. It starts that way, but it ends up with people worship however they fancy. Now, do you know what Micah's name means? Micah's name means, uh, sorry, Micah's name means, who is like the Lord? So his name asks the question, who is like the Lord? And the answer to that question is obviously no one. His name asks the question that says no one. But in his actions, the answer to his own name is everyone and anything is like the Lord. He's no different from the surrounding gods. And of course, that's what the whole nation ends up doing. So blending worship is dangerous. Because blended worship spreads. Uh, children, I wonder if any of you got uh, chicken pox last year. Last year, I think, before Christmas, it was, there was chicken pox in the church, chicken pox on our street at home, chicken pox at school. I was thinking, it's everywhere. Then I realized, one second, there's one common denominator there. <laughs> so yeah, our bad. But it's, it's spread absolutely everywhere. It really does go everywhere. And that's why blended worship is so dangerous. And there's a responsibility from the individual to the broader church. Jesus will say a little, a little yeast will work through the whole batch. Their sin is contagious. Again, New Testament scriptures, we're called to discipline sin, aren't we? We're called to obviously preach the gospel and, and it's forgiven. But we're called to take sin seriously. So let's, let's draw it together with a few thoughts. Blended worship, it's mad, it's transactional, it's pathetic and it's contagious and it's no worship at all ultimately it is not true worship even though it's done in the name of Yahweh even though it might be done in the name of the Father, Son and the Holy Spirit to worship in a way that God has not prescribed ultimately is to not worship him at all now much like the rest of the book of Judges we're not told so much what to do it diagnoses us like I had this health chart that said your blood sugar is too high. That's what it's saying to us. Your blood sugar is too high. The spiritual equivalent of that. Partly it's saying watch out lest you do the same. But I think even more painfully God is saying you are the same. Uh, we are the same as the Israelites. So there, there is a difference theologically speaking. We're people of the new covenant. We have his spirit. But we haven't left the flesh behind. So we still have inclinations to do just exactly what the Danites were doing, what Michael was doing, what his mother was doing, what the Levite was doing. This is who we are. But it's a kindness of the Lord 
to show it to us. He doesn't want us to go out feeling browbeaten this morning. Yes, he does want us humble so that we can come back to him. And we won't say, hold on a second, I'm no Micah. I'm no Micah's mother. I'm no Levite. I'm nothing like the Danites. And of course, most of us don't make carved images, do we? Or shrines for worship at home. But do you ever wonder, do you ever wonder just how much of the values of the surrounding culture have come into our church, have come into your heart in the way you view God? You see, in this story, the people, the Danites, the Levite, uh, Micah himself, they're not worshipping Baal. They're not worshipping the Asterisks. They're not worshipping Dagon. They were the actual gods by name of the surrounding nations who come up uh, in this book. In name, they're worshipping the triune gods. But they've imported the worship of the nations. Local worship, carved images, shrines. So the question is, how do we do the same? I think if we look at our surrounding culture and we think, yeah, we're, we believe in God and our surrounding culture is atheistic, we'll be blind to how we see the religion, the worship of our world come into our church. But I think if we recognize the surrounding culture for what it is, their religions, maybe um, you might think of it as humanism. You know, the hope of our world is dependent upon human progress. Uh, maybe if you see the worship of our culture being therapeutic moral deism, you know, the belief that there is a distant God who basically affirms moral choices, doesn't really matter what they are, but affirms moral choices and his job is to make me feel good. If we see them as the surrounding religions, then we might recognise that actually we are quite in danger of blending our worship to be like those around us. How so? What does our culture prioritise? Well, it prioritises uh, tolerance over truth, over truth, doesn't it? So we need to tolerate and affirm other opinions, not, a, not other opinions that are just wrong, we need to tolerate other opinions that are inherently self-contradictory. We're urged to strike a dichotomy between God's love and God's justice. As if, yeah, God is primarily loving. Justice is just a sort of thing, a take or leave thing. Or maybe it's his love and his holiness. They're saying, well, no, no, love. God's really about love. Holiness, well, it's not the main thing. Don't worry about it. Again, in, in some parts uh, of the UK church, we're told to prioritise God's forgiveness over the importance of obedience or the direct opposite error as well. Sometimes there's no forgiveness at all. Sometimes we're well, even within the church. Once certain transgressions have been committed, a person is beyond the pale, not welcome. Or again, when our sincere feelings starts to essentially be the ultimate guide to decisions that we make, to, to, that we make. Yeah, but they really, really believe it. They really, really feel that way. That is uh, the worship of our world. That's, and the danger is we blend all those things into the way we follow the Lord Jesus Christ, constantly borrowing from the worldview around us and blending it in with our worship of the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, we all do it. We're all in danger of doing it. And Judges 17 to 18 is there to help hold, us, hold it up to us and say, Look, watch out, because by nature, this is what we'll be doing. But as we close, we must remember that Judges 17 to 18, and in fact, 
19 to 21 as well, don't just diagnose us. They also give us the cure. Do you remember it was hinted at early on? In those days, there was no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. There was no king. And so it ended in chaos. And it really is going to end in total chaos. I think we're doing next week, the week after. It is one of the worst parts of the scriptures in terms of violence and sin. But remarkably, these are the sorts of people who God has mercy on. It is for these people that God sent his king. So you go through the historical books of Bible. We've got Ruth uh, sort of wedged in between. But historical books of the Bible, Judges followed by 1 Samuel. Where there's uh, another woman from the hill country of Ephraim. And she has a son, Samuel. And he calls people back to the Lord. And he anoints David, the king. The Lord has mercy on people even who blend their worship with others. So you might think, actually, I'm totally guilty of all this. Well, the good news is you've got a king. You've got a king and he's been sent for you. And we must not lose sight of him. You see, King David came to lead the people of Israel back to true worship. We see that in the Psalms, don't we? How many of the Psalms start with of David? It's a song of David, a way in which uh, to worship uh, God faithfully. And today, on David's throne, another king sits. His throne isn't in Israel. It is in heaven. The Lord Jesus Christ is sitting at the right hand of the Father. And the great news about our king is that, firstly, he's merciful. He is wonderful in mercy. God did not send uh, Israel a king that his king could then go and slaughter Israel. He sent Israel a king so that he might rescue Israel from themselves. And that is exactly what our king does to us. But secondly, he sent a king to rule his people. And again, that is exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ does. He has sent his spirit that we might worship faithfully. And so what do we do? What do we do when we realized so often we're totally compromised? So much of the world's values have slipped into our Christianity. We rejoice that we have a good king. We have a rejoice that our true worship leader, the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, will steer us back to him. That's what he will do. And so we come to him for mercy, yes, for forgiveness, but for help too. We say, Lord Jesus Christ, pour out your spirit. Please help us be faithful again. Show me my blind spots. Forgive me where I've just swallowed the valleys of this world, hook, line and sinker. And please take me back to the true worship of you. So let us do that now in humility. Let's ask him for grace and pray that he would lead us in spirit and in truth. Let's pray. <coughs> Father in heaven, we, we see in Judges 17, 18, an awful situation, awful worship, total faithlessness to you. And yet we see in our hearts how we are inclined to do exactly the same. We pray for your forgiveness. We pray that you'd have mercy on us. Thank you for sending the Lord Jesus Christ to be our king. Not only as the one who dies on the cross for us, but also the one now who reigns, who is sitting at your right hand on high, sending out his spirit. Lord Jesus, we praise you. We thank you that you were always worshipped faithfully in your days on earth. And thank you that you lead us now. And we pray that you would lead us to right worship once more. Worship in spirit and worship in truth. Please do that work in us. Give us faithfulness, we pray. 
that it might go well for us and that you might get all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.